0: Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.
1: This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio.
0: This week on Rewind, your week in review. State Supreme Court candidates square off in their first forum, the political and judicial issues discussed. Plus, Republicans on the powerful Rules Committee suspend a rule aimed at changing someone's sexual orientation. We have the fallout and the Republican proposals to cut taxes. We have the latest details from the Capitol. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for January 13th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J. Ross. JR Ross. junior we're going to start off with much anticipation now mm-hmm. that we have finally figured out what Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu's flat tax proposal looks like. He released the bill at 10 a.m. this morning. So we've been diving into what it would do and what would it mean for taxpayers. First, let's just start with some of the highlights. He introduced a plan that would phase in the flat tax, starting at, th- or f- phase in a flat tax of 3.25% over the next three years. Now. This comes as a lot of people have been talking about what this tax plan would eventually look like. So when you look at it um, in totality, it would cost roughly $5 billion. Now, when I spoke to Senator Lemahue, he said, well, majority of that would be paid for with the projected now nearly $7 billion. So it would reduce the tax brackets roughly about a fourth each year to eventually get to that at 2026. Now, it's important to note that Governor Tony Evers' Almost immediately after this plan was released, he sent out a tweet saying what he's been saying all along, that he does not want tax breaks for the millionaires and billionaires in Wisconsin. He much rather see his plan go through the state legislature or implemented in the state budget that would cut taxes for the middle class. His proposal would do that by cutting taxes by 10%. Republicans have not really seemed interested in that. Now, J.R., you've also been diving into the bill itself. So I guess what would this mean for taxpayers? Who really see the impact here in the first few years? So you're
1: not going to be surprised it would skew toward the wealthy, um, because you really are gearing this toward lowering the top income tax rate. Um, The reason that Republicans are going to argue that this is necessary is, if you look around the country, and in the Midwest, we have one of the highest top income tax rates. That kicks in for married, joint fathers, about $370,000 of income. Lemon has been arguing that those are not just millionaires they are business owners, people who pay for softball leagues, who donate to the community, who are active in their communities. They're ones who are filing their taxes through their individual income tax form, not through the corporation form, right? So looking at the distribution, this would be phased over 4 years. So tax year 23, 24, 25, 26, as you ratchet down the brackets, you ratchet up the cost. 2.1 billion the first year, 2.8 billion the second. So that's this biennium roughly four point nine billion dollars of that almost seven dollar surplus. Then it goes up to where you're saying the five billion dollars in the final year of the package, that final fiscal year, that's what really hits. Looking at the impact for individuals, if you look at the final year, the adjust, median adjusted gross income for all files who would see a tax break would be between about sixty and seventy thousand dollars. Those files on average according to the Fiscal Bureau see a reduction of six hundred ninety dollars. If you look at those with adjusted gross income between $250,000 and $300,000, it jumps to $5,052. Go to the less than 9,000 people or filers who have incomes more than a million bucks, the reduction would be $112,000. Obviously, again, it is skewed toward those who are making more money because they are paying, they're hitting hit by that higher income tax bracket than others. The challenge for Republicans is gonna be, how do you sell this, right, mm-hmm. number one? How do you pay for it, number two? There's going to be arguments that you could offset the cost through other ways. And this also might just be the opening salvo. This could be the beginning of the conversation of, well, do you ratchet up the in- uh, sales tax, I'm sorry, to offset some of the lost income tax revenue? There are all kinds of possibilities. One thing we know is Governor Evers does not want to do <laughs> any, of, any this of this stuff. right. Mm-hmm. So how much Republicans wedded to this idea, or is this just kind of the opening of the debate, the negotiations over tax cuts for this budget.
0: And it kind of is, because I spoke to Senator Lemihieu this morning, right after this bill came out, and he noted... Because I asked him, I mean, well, how do you plan to make up the difference in revenue with such an expensive plan, right? Well, he of course noted there's a $7 billion surplus towards the end of, you know, 2026. So it costs roughly around $5 billion. But he also said other states that have a flat tax, he said that they have seen as sales tax revenues and other revenues go up, more people will have more money to spend. You know, it will also, you know, if you're seen reductions well then maybe you spend that elsewhere throughout your community. Um, I also asked him you know what about paying for roads uh, down the line how are you gonna do that? Um, didn't really have a clear-cut answer on that but he also said you know this is kind of just a start you know we hope to convince the governor to do this that's why he also said he changed it from original was floating uh, around 3.5% for a flat tax he went down to 3.25 um, but you know the governor already seems to not be interested in this but is there somewhere when it comes to budget negotiations where they can maybe meet in the middle. Maybe it's not a flat tax, maybe it's tax cuts elsewhere. And it's also, you know, what is Assembly Speaker Robin Voss thinking? He has, of course, supported a flat tax, but it seems that he has something, maybe something else um, that he wants to introduce down the line.
1: When I talked to him in the year in interviews, he said the flat tax is up the hill he wants to die on in this budget. (laughs) And that middle point you're talking about, the governor has been touting this middle class tax cut that he wants to bring up. It's a $600 million package in this biennium. This one is $4.9 billion. There's a giant right. middle space between those two numbers in these negotiations.
0: All right, and also this week, after much anticipation, Governor Tony Evers officially signed an executive order banning TikTok on state government devices like cell phones. Um, so This comes after Governor Evers first said, eh, you know, maybe I'm not gonna do that, but never officially said he wasn't going to. Then after more pressure kind of built, we saw the federal government pass a ban. A lot more people started asking him about it. He said kind of after talking to cybersecurity experts and uh, the FBI officials, he officially made this. Now it's important to note the the TikTok ban, which is a popular video sharing app, does not apply to people like you and me. Mm -hmm. It's only if you work for the state and are issued a state cell phone. Now this order does not apply to state employees such as the UW system, but when I reached out to them yesterday, they did say that they are starting to have discussion to see if they also might implement a plan, a ban, excuse me.
1: Yes, also remember that the governor can't dictate to the Department of Public Instruction, Department of Justice, what they do because they are agencies headed by separate constitutional officers. Both those agencies also said they're working on a ban that reflects what the governor's doing. Like, my impression has been there are not that many people in the executive branch who have TikTok on their state issued devices. Um, this is not a huge thing, but it's become a groundswell of support to do something about it. Also worth noting, like with DOJ, the spokesperson there said, look, uh, we are going to have a ban that mirrors what the governor's doing. We have to have access to TikTok, though, for investigations, because if you have a missing person, for example, you need to track their social media to know where they were last seen so they can't just, like... Push it off of state devices in that regard.
0: And the whole issue behind this of why it became kind of controversial, or I guess the governor kind of maybe felt pressure to do it, we've seen multiple other states take action for this. And the reasoning is because FBI officials, cybersecurity experts, they have warned that the the, the company, which is owned by a, a Chinese company, um, by Tense, uh, that they can, you know, you know, uh, spy on users Mm -hmm. and they can become vulnerable and use it as Chinese propaganda. We saw Congressman uh, Gallagher in Congress. He was kind of the one that really pushed this to the federal level. He sent a letter to Governor Evers, I believe, in November, maybe early December, asking him to ban this. So this has been kind of a long uh, storyline that finally kind of put to an end. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also this week we kind of kicked off many committee hearings at the state capitol because next week will be uh, the assembly will be taking uh, uh, their first votes on the floor. We'll get to what they'll be voting on in a little bit but first was kind of a controversial hearing on Thursday over JCRER which is the powerful rules committee. Republicans who uh, serve on that committee voted to suspend a rule that will resume conversion therapy in Wisconsin which would allow therapists and counselors and social workers that are licensed to try and change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. To put it in the shortest terms, Jr. this has been over a two-year battle in the state legislature. First, it was banned. Then, it wasn't banned. Then, the ban went back in place. And now, it's not in place again because there there was legislation that failed. So what happened in 2020, after lawmakers couldn't enact any ban, it essentially just sat in the rules committee And that was a strategy, in a sense, by Republicans. So governor couldn't, the governor couldn't veto a bill that would have allowed conversion theory to continue in Wisconsin. So once December rolled around, or excuse me, after that, uh, the state licensing board, which is under DSPS, they enacted their own rule on their own. And that's what Republicans had an issue with in this committee he- hearing. They argued that it wasn't about the merits of conversion theory. It was that DSPS, the state licensing board, went ahead on their own without their approval to do this. Now let's hear some of the arguments um, that happened on there, basically about how people kind of have very different opinions about what this would mean for Wisconsinites. Let's take a listen. Does it concern you at all that there is so much data that conversion therapy can actually harm young people and that there could be increased risk of suicide? I do not believe that there is sufficient information to say conclusively that a young person who is told this may not be the best path for you and would you consider the fact that some of the actions you may take to try to reconcile your, your gender confusion, have ramifications beyond today, but into your entire life, that that, that that kind of counseling results in any kind of conclusive way in suicide. Even if we're not positive that this is a contributor or that that is a reason we don't understand why, what more <laughs> do we need to, I mean, how much data would convince you that maybe this is something harmful and maybe we should tread carefully we both share a concern for our young people uh, and and I believe you have a sincere concern for that as it do I how we help them and how we deal with them we have a difference of opinion about um, what conversion therapy is and that's what it boils down to there was a lot of LGBTQ uh, individuals who were pretty outraged by this uh, move um, now they called it kind of an attack uh, on uh, people such as themselves, and, and gay people, and transgender people in Wisconsin. Um, it is important to note, though, that there are more than, I believe, 14 communities, more than a dozen, that have implemented their own conversion therapy ban for minors, um, places like Madison, uh, Milwaukee, Sheboygan, Racine, Glendale, West Allis. I could probably go on, but those <laughs> are just the name of few. Um, so those will still be intact. Uh, that w- They will not have to apply to the state ban.
1: Yeah, so this is just part of the culture wars. Um. Remember with JCRAR, uh, they will get to another opportunity to suspend the rule, again extend the suspension next year, uh, then you have to throw these procedural hoops to keep it in place. Uh, so something to kind of watch going forward, but there's no statutory ban law about conversion therapy. What this rule really did was say if you do practice that, it's misconduct. It would be a de facto ban, and they suspended that ability for the agency to say that's misconduct if you try and practice this, this therapy
0: and like I mentioned before heading to next week the assembly is scheduled to be in session on Thursday and the one item on their list of course the calendar is not finalized yet, is the constitutional amendment that addresses bail laws. Now we've talked about this multiple times on the show. They swiftly went through committee this week and it essentially would make it harder for violent offenders to get out and bail. This was introduced by a pair of Republican lawmakers in wake of the Waukesha Christmas Parade a tragedy that happened when the suspect, who is now behind bars, uh, was given a very low bail. So it became very controversial. So now we're at this point where this has already passed two consecutive sessions and representative city duco is one of the co-sponsors has always told me her goal is to get this on the april ballot this year and it's looking like they could get there Mm -hmm. Um, let's just hear a little bit uh, from both sides on this issue because there are still some democrats who expressed this during the committee hearing that they believe this won't really reform the criminal justice system they in a sense think it's just going to make it more unfair when judges set bail because there are some people who can afford it and others who can't let's take a listen
1: Wisconsin is the only state that only allows judges to consider a single factor when setting cash bail. Under our proposal, and for violent crimes only, judges will have the flexibility to determine bail based on the totality of the circumstances. Why are we not having a discussion that says, let's, let's say that this is person is a significant risk regardless of the amount of money that they have in their wallet? Instead of saying, this person's a risk, let's, 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 let's see if they have more money.
0: Daryl Brooks has a rap sheet a mile long, multiple convictions for domestic abuse. He runs over a person with his car, and someone thought $1,000 was the right amount of money. I can't tell you what the right amount of money was, but I can tell you it wasn't $1,000. So, Daryl
1: Brooks would have committed it whether he, he, you know, he may have done this whether he had to pay 20000 50000 the money had nothing to do with it he shouldn't have been released and we should change the system accordingly this is making sure that people who are poor will not be able to be released to be able to use the model of a broken system instead of saying you know what if somebody is a risk we don't let them out
0: this amendment is expected to pass uh, both chambers and then like i mentioned um, putting it on the april ballot has always been a goal but jared there's kind of political reasonings behind why Republicans want to put it on the ballot if so soon? Through,
1: through both houses by January 24th, it can go on the April ballot. There is a belief this could help draw, conservatives out the polls on election day in April. Um, if Jennifer Doro is the conservative nominee for Supreme Court on the ballot in April, that would be a nice tie-in to conservatives, right? What I don't know is, will this really drive turnout in April versus the millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on the race for Supreme Court? I'm not sure this is a huge issue, I expect to see other efforts by conservatives to try and find ways to jazz up the supporters ahead of April, but that's part of what's going on because there are three other amendments that have been introduced or that passed last session that could come back up. One would no longer allow governors to spend federal money without legislative input. It's all about like the federal COVID money. Um, others have banned private resources in elections. They haven't been moving very fast. This seems to be the one they think is the most impactful for April.
0: And the other uh, constitutional amendment that hasn't been reintroduced but is expected would clarify language in the state's uh, constitution to say only citizens can vote. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's now recap uh, the Supreme Court uh, forum that you and I both co-hosted on Monday. Some of the highlights, of course, all of the candidates while they were on there during their open remarks vowed to be fair and impartial from the bench but some of the main takeaways that I saw is that the two liberal justices, which is Janet Protezowitz and Everett Mitchell, they both kind of said, I guess they kind of shared a little bit more about their, they call them values, mm-hmm. when it comes to redistricting and abortion. We had a question that asked them, what do you think was the worst uh, case uh, um, by the U.S. Supreme Court? And they both said Roe v. Wade being overturned. And then we had Janet Protezowitz also kind of say, well, the maps uh, that the legislature enacted, or excuse me, the state Supreme Court enacted last year, were rigged. So we saw kind of more people be a little bit more vocal, um, whereas the two liberal justices, which are Dan Kelly and Jennifer Duro, they were a little bit more reserved. Dan Kelly started kind of touting, you know, I've been on the court before in his opening remarks, and then we saw Duro talk about, well, I was that judge that presided over that case to try to make her pitch to voters as well. Let's hear just a little bit from each of the candidates, and then we'll kind of dive into more of the highlights that you thought of the citizens of Wisconsin got a very unique opportunity to see my approach to fairness and justice I heard from judges across the country and even inmates who sent letters praising my efforts to be fair and impartial in the face of extreme disrespect disruption and at times even vile behavior.
1: What we need to do is to ensure that legislative districts are drawn in a fair, nonpartisan way. We're saying to folks, both on the left and to the right, that your voices don't matter in these districts. Only party leadership does. The least change approach always means the same it always means wait it always means never and it always means more oppression and more pain for folks who don't have voice in the political process so let's be clear here the maps are rigged they do not reflect the people in this state they do not reflect accurately representation
0: neither the state assembly or the state senate basically what the least change approach has done has taken votes away from, or meaningful votes away, from people in larger communities. I can't ever tell you what I'm gonna do on a
1: particular case, but I can tell you my values and common sense tell you that it's wrong. I think when someone tells you what their values are in answer to a legal question, they're telling you how they're going to decide a case. When that map comes to the court, its mandate is the same as with respect to every other case that has ever come before the court or will ever come before the courts to decide questions of law, not
0: politics. Now, after this forum, we did hear some conservatives kind of take shots at um for mentioning how she might rule on a specific case when it comes to redistricting. Um, now, that c- case is not before the state Supreme Court, but it essentially maybe might be brought back up, depending who is mm-hmm. elected in that vacant seat. Another thing that I noticed um, throughout the forum is that Durrow really stuck to her remarks. She kind of had uh, prepared responses in front of her and didn't really answer a lot of questions when we did ask things specifically um, You know, you asked about um, uh, her application when applying of what she thought was um, the worst decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, Um, but I think she did answer who her uh, favorite founding father was, which was kind of a fun one that we threw in there from an audience question.
1: So both Kelly and Dora have applied for judicial appointments under Scott Walker. Uh, So the two conservatives, we had some record of, like, their thoughts about these cases. So Kelly, in his application for the Supreme Court appointment in 2016, had noted the Supreme Court ruling about... Um, the taking of private private property and giving it to another private entity if it can be put to a better economic use. He said that stood up pretty well. Kelly sounded like a law professor. He is very well versed on what's going on, constitutional issues. Um, he was appointed to the court by Walker in sixteen as a nod to conservatives who wanted a, a deep thinker, an Anton Scalia of Wisconsin, at least to, that's what they told me. And he reflects that. He maybe talks a little bit longer than he should. Uh, some <laughs> there Republicans was time told me to yes, let people know but too. But just yes. in general he goes a little bit too deep when talking to uh, average voters, Doro. Her application for a Walker appointment eleven cited the U.S. Supreme Court overturning an anti-sodomy law in Texas in two thousand three. Um, asked about that, is that still the one she thinks is the worst ruling in thirty years? She talked about the law versus her personal beliefs don't always match up. Then addressed the question. Um, it's interesting with Doro. There's all this buzz about her among conservatives because of the Gerald Brooks trial and the national tension she got. The question has become okay what about the money and the substance? Can she hold up to the scrutiny of a, you know, a race? Because she was appointed to the bench in 2011. She won a full term in 12 without facing an opponent and a full term in 18, again, unopposed. She's never faced voters with an opponent on the ballot. She's never been through this stuff before. So maybe the the binder of talking points was just kind of like her being thorough and trying to be prepared. And that's her, her fans like, that's no okay. It's just her being very meticulous about things. To others, it's why can't you talk about these deep issues, these constitutional issues, just from like, you know, off memory if you want to be in the Supreme Court? Uh, we will, shall see. Uh, the fear among conservatives is will she hold up the scrutiny if she is the nominee, you know, one of the nominees, you know, past February, because the intensity gets much more ramped up in the April election. Um, if you have, somebody me put out um, a Mary Burke moment. Mary Burke ran for governor in 2014. She had passages of her platform plagiarized from another candidate. Um, she was asked to answer a question to find plagiarism, and she froze. It seems like a small thing, but those moments can kill a campaign, can kill momentum for a campaign. That's one of the worries about you know Dora's. Is she going to be ready for that? Will she blink when the intensity gets, if she's the one that gets through? On the liberal side, uh, per se, which she was more aggressive maybe in answering questions about her values and where the maps are rigged, The moaning Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, So she's obviously making a nod toward liberal voters of like, I'm the one you want to follow. You know, Mitchells can be the same, they're in the same lane. And remember, it's all four in one pot in February. There's no guarantee of a liberal and conservative getting through. It's the top two vote getters. So what I'm watching is, how do they treat each other in these lanes? Are we going to see To say which go after Mitchell or Doro go after Kelly or vice versa. It's going to be fascinating to watch how they use their resources um, to go after each other or if they just focus on themselves because there's no guarantee. If you attack candidate X, it'll benefit you because it might backfire on you. That's a real risk for these guys.
0: Right. And Jerry, you try to do some digging on specifically how much money these campaigns are raising right now. And you did hear back from Potasiewicz and she has raised over $750,000 over the last half of 2022, according to her campaign and fundraising year. Now that tops previous wet records set by Justice Shirley Abertson raised in 2008, which is a record about 823,000.
1: Yeah. Add in what brought in the first half of the year, she's over 900K, that's a pretty good number. And none of it came from her own pocket that we've seen so far. So that's, for a first time statewide candidate, That's good. that's a good number.
0: And, JR, who else did you hear back from?
1: Uh, Kelly's campaign said raised $312,000 from September when he got in, yet in December. The fact that I haven't heard from Mitchell or Doro, insiders tell me, suggest they did not top what Janet did. <laughs> so right. that's a sign. If in campaigns, if somebody puts out a number and you can top it, you put it out right away. Of course. <laughs> so the fact they haven't done that tells us something.
0: All right. And quickly, we are kind of running out of time here, but we've got a lot more to cover. Um, we did hear of a new appointment uh, by Governor Tony Evers to serve in the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am talking about Bond, yes. James Bond, yes. but not the one yeah. that we are all thinking. I know everyone kind of had a chuckle with this. Now, why is his appointment significant is because he his appointment uh, will mark the first time an LGBTQ Individual will lead one of the state cabinet agencies. Now, that's according to records by the Legislative Fiscal, excuse me, Reference Bureau. Now, Bond is a disabled veteran who served in the U.S. Marine Corps, and his appointment comes at a time uh, when there's been kind of some scandals, mm-hmm. I should say, uh, and the department as a whole has been under fire recently. Uh, the recent report was uh, done by the Journal Sentinel, which included two deaths, including a man who caught on fire at the King's Veterans Home in Wapaka County. So it kind of under Scores a lot of problems that have happened so of course he's going to try to have a fresh start when mm-hmm. coming in here.
1: Look uh, the problems with King didn't begin with the Evers administration they've been going on Correct. for years and years and years but they inherited them. What I'm watching is how do Republicans treat this nomination during the confirmation process? Does he get raked over the coals? Is it like you know does he get rejected because of these issues? Um, it be something to watch because it could be an example of how do Republicans approach these nominations going forward Now that Lemieux has said, we're going to move them all, they're all going to committee, we're going to have the whole process. How is it going to work in practice?
0: All right, going to stock picks. Rising this week, what? Whoa, can't talk. Rising this week is former state senator Dale Coenga.
1: Yeah, he lands at MMAC. He's going to be this newly created vice president position with a kind of a path for taking over in 2024. Tim Sheehy has led that group since 1992 or 3, I believe. This is going to be the transition. To Kinga being the president of this powerful business group in Milwaukee, great landing spot for him. You know, it's always interesting for former lawmakers see where they land. Right. And mm-hmm. for Kinga, this is a great spot for him. It, it can really, he know, his expertise in the capital. Um, also, be interesting to watch how he um, pushes on issues like a sales tax for Milwaukee. MMAC uh, is behind that idea. Republicans' legislature are not. Uh, also worth noting that Kinga told me it closes the door on running for public office for the next decade at least. I mean. He basically said he's not interested, period. But, so look, I'm 43. I can't tell where I'm going to be in 10, 12, 15 years. But for the next decade, no runs. No rumors, no hints, no nothing. I am locked in the MAC for a decade.
0: All right. And mixed this week, we're going back to the state Supreme Court, specifically Jennifer Duro. Uh, because there's been kind of some spat between yeah. her and Kelly in recent days on conservative radio show of both of them kind of t- taking hits at one another. So to build off
1: what we were talking about before, there's a resources question with her, right? Where is her money going to come from? Kelly has uh, this Dick Uline affiliated group, Dick Uline, the mega donor, Illinois businessman. Uh, Fair Courts America says it's gonna spend millions to help Kelly, educate the public about Kelly. Where is the door money gonna come from? How is she gonna promote herself? Um, will the Uline group spend money at the primary? There's this kind of hope among conservatives that they just all stand down and try not to get into a nasty spat. That doesn't bode well though, you listen to radio interviews. Uh, Shelley Grogan, an appeals court judge who won in 2021, um, she went on the radio to bash, basically bash Doro, um, to undercut the endorsement she got from Pat Rogensack, the outgoing sort of justice, backed Doro over Kelly, who she served with for four years. I mean, is that about electability? Is that about like a personal spat with Kelly? I don't know, but it's you know it's a nice get. Still, is like, look, Roggensack endorsed my opponent in 2021, who was Evers' appointee, spent a bunch of his personal money trying to win the seat and fool the voters. Um, it didn't work. Doro's unproven. There are quote-unquote flags about her. Um, look at her uh, sentences, uh, low bail, when the cameras aren't in the courtroom. Like, basically, it's kind of like just dig after dig at her. Doro then goes back on the next day and says, look, um, Kelly had his time. He lost. Let's think about elective bit. There's a buzz about me that isn't there about him. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it shows you the potential for a not very friendly primary with those who are going at it. And I'm really watching to see, does condor turn that buzz into money and then getting through the primary? And there, again, it, the stuff about the binder, things in the races are, are sometimes over, over-analyzed, really kind of like scrutinized, but what's... Is she ready? Like That's the question. Right. Because she's new. She only got in in uh, like late November, early December. She has not faced voters before. She hasn't been tested by voters. Now, I'm not saying about her, her personal beliefs or you know, whether she's can serve or not, but she hasn't been tested by voters. Now, Kelly, though, he was tested. He lost. And he's, he's been lost in debates before. Yeah. yeah. He's got, and that's part of Drogan's point was, Kelly, we know where he has We can't afford a Brian Hagedorn. That was basically the message. I was just going to bring that (laughs)
0: up, right, because they they know how Kelly has voted on the court before. With Duro, with her not weighing in on specific issues, of course, everyone, you know, most of the time, don't say how they're going to rule out on a case, but like, you know, with Pertezowicz, she's kind of giving little hits to her, you know, base, saying, hey, if you elect me, I I can tell you probably how I'm likely going to vote. With Duro, you really don't. Um, And she hasn't done a lot of interviews with the press. She's now kind of going to conservative radio to get her message out, so kind of remains to be seen what how, how nasty maybe this might get yeah, down absolutely. the road. Because it's still early but I'm telling you, yeah. <laughs> this election is going to sneak up on a lot of us. Okay, falling this week is Weck, Republican Commissioner Bob Spindell over a memo, an email that he sent to supporters that essentially said uh, you know, I guess I should summarize this because you and I both talked Mm -hmm. to Spindell and we got a copy of this memo. It says in part of the email that he kind of celebrated suppressing the black and Hispanic vote in Milwaukee. But then you talk to him a little bit later and he says, no, it wasn't about celebrating that. It was about touting GOP strategies and that it worked.
1: So if you want to be very generous to Bob Spindell, his argument is it wasn't about suppressing the vote, but about giving black and brown voters who have voted Democratic for generations pause to sit out in 2022 as a transition toward voting Republican down the line. Very generous. Otherwise, you read the memo, he's bragging about black and Hispanic voters not turning out, mm-hmm. and that being key to defeating, uh, or for Ron Johnson winning, the Senate race. Not a great look, period, for an uh, official who is chair of the 4th Congressional District Republican Party, but especially as an election commissioner. Now, commissioners are partisan appointments. I really mean the two clerks aren't as partisan. The other four are very partisan. You know, They make comments, they're not shy about their opinions. This is not a great look for Spindell. As one Republican told me, look, he should be worried less about turnout in Milwaukee and more about the suppression Republicans employed in suburban Milwaukee. What's going on with Republicans not getting the vote up in Waukesha, Ozaukee, Washington? Worry about that, Bob, not about what's happening in Milwaukee. So just not a great look, not especially for who he is and the position that he is in.
0: All right. That will do it. We had a jam-packed show. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin.
1: And I'm J.R. Ross.
0: We'll see you next week.
1: This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio.
0: Rewind. Your week in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.